Before we read Jeremiah chapter 2, I want to kind of explain what was going on in this passage of Scripture. This is the first recorded message that Jeremiah ever preached. He preached a lot of sermons. This is the first recorded one. I can remember when I preached my first sermon. I was 10 years old. I didn't do it because I wanted to. My dad told me, I think you ought to preach this year at junior camp. Junior camp we went to had competitions, so kids would preach, and they would sing and play instruments and sports, and we'd come back with all these ribbons, you know. And so he said, you ought to preach. I said, I don't like preaching. I don't want to preach. He said, I'll help you write the message. And so we went to 1 Corinthians 15, and, and I found out that the word victory in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, the Greek word is spelled like our word Nike, N-I-K-E. Now, this is before the controversy of Nike, so give me a little grace here. Um, but, but I decided that I was going to use Nike the, 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 as an acrostic. And so every, the first point started with N, the second point started with I, the third point started with K, the fourth point started with E. And the title of my message was Just Do It. So it was cute. It had nothing to do with the text of Scripture that I was dealing with, but it was a cute message. I'm proud to say I got third place. My first ever sermon. Unfortunately, there are only three contestants in my age group. I'm thankful Jeremiah was a little better preacher in his first sermon than I was. The reason why is because his sermon came straight from heaven. He didn't have to exegete a passage of scripture. He didn't have to study from a Bible dictionary or commentary. You know what he did? He said to perk his ear to heaven. And God literally told him audibly, this is what I want you to say to my people. And when a prophet would speak, it was usually bad news. It was because God was in this covenantal relationship with his people. And his people are not doing their part of the deal. God always does his part of the deal. And so when he would send this prophet preacher, it's usually to tell them, hey, things aren't right. Such was the case in Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to cover 19 verses, but I'm just going to read one to give us the context. Look at verse number 9. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. When we think of the word plead, normally we think that it means to ask for something. It's almost like a picture of even begging for something, as though a child is in Walmart and pleading with his parents, can I have that toy? Please let me have that piece of candy. I'm pleading with you, Mom and Dad. That's not what this word means, though. In this text, this word plead means to argue against, to make a case against. So the picture is this, God is pleading with his children. In this particular passage, it's the nation of Judah. It's the picture of God as a prosecuting attorney. As a lawyer arguing his case. It's as though a lawyer steps before a judge and, and says in, in, the, in the court of law, Your Honor, I have the evidence I'm laying before you and I'm going to make my case or argue a case against this criminal for why he or she is guilty. That's the context of Jeremiah chapter 2. Now I love, I love preaching about how God is gracious and loving and kind and forgiving and patient and all of those things. I, I love when, when passages of Scripture highlight that attribute of God. But we can't forget that God is also just. And for him to be perfect, he can't tolerate sin. And so in this passage, it's a very serious tone. And here's what's happening. His people, the nation of Judah, are in the hot seat. I put two because 
I wanted to stand behind a pulpit today. So this is the same seat. They're in the court of law. They're in God's court. And he's going to argue a case against them. You might be thinking, this is Old Testament, so surely this is just for the nation at this time. Well, the Apostle Paul told us that the things in the Old Testament were written for our example. They're written for us to learn from. And do you think that God preserved these sermons in his canon of Scripture just so we could have a cute story to read? No, God, God, God inspired and preserved these for us to read today because they are relevant in our life right now. And so I submit to you that the nation of Judah aren't the only ones in the hot seat. We are too. And God is our prosecuting attorney. And I've got to warn you, if you sit in the hot seat with me today, you're on trial before God. Which means that the hot seat is really hot. And it's uncomfortable. And it can apply some pressure. You know why? Because God is the lawyer. He doesn't need evidence. He doesn't need to bring in witnesses today. No DNA testing. You know why? God knows everything there is to know about you. He doesn't need the witness of anybody else. Because he knows what you think. He knows what you say. He knows what you do. And he knows where you go. And it's deeper than that. God also knows why you think what you think. Why you say what you say. Why you do what you do and why you go the places you go. And so I'm going to ask you, not physically, but in your mind, to sit in the hot seat today. I'm going to be sitting there too. And we're going to go on trial before God and his argument is very, very simple. He's going to start with this point the way it was. The second point he's going to argue is the way it is. The third point he's going to argue against his people and against us today is if something doesn't change, here's the way it's going to be. Let's start in verse 1 where he argues the point the way it was. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem saying, thus saith the Lord, I remember thee. God is saying, I remember some things about you, Judah. I remember some things about our relationship, how it used to be, how it was. Well, God, what do you remember? He starts here. I remember the kindness of thy youth. What is God saying? He's saying, I remember when you used to be like a kind little boy. You know, there is, there is something inherently kind about a young child, isn't there? I mean, they kind of lose it when they get to sixth grade and become psychomaniacs. But when they're little, when they're young, there's just something inherently kind. It's just naturally cute and enthusiastic. It could be their innocence. I, I'm not sure. But over time, things change as they grow. I remember I would be playing Legos or playing a video game or in the backyard doing something during a week in which my dad has been gone preaching a meeting for four or five days like he is this week. And I'd be five or six years old, seven or eight years old, and my dad would come rolling back into the driveway and my mom would say, hey, daddy's home, and I would stop whatever I was doing and I wouldn't even let my dad get into the house before I would meet him in the driveway and say, daddy! I didn't care what the neighbors thought. I didn't care if my friends saw me. I didn't feel a bit uncomfortable. I was just a little boy. Then I turned 13. 
I told the class today, if you want to know the best way to parent a teenager, Mark Twain said, build a cardboard box, put a big hole in it, put your teenager in there, let them out when they're 18. You can feed them through the hole in the box. I turned 13 and things changed. My dad went on a trip, he would come home, and my mom would say, Dad's home! You didn't call him Dad anymore. And it's not like I was mad that he was home, I was just a little bit indifferent I didn't stop playing my video game. I didn't stop building a Lego. I didn't stop doing what I was doing in the backyard. My dad would have to come to me and in the middle of playing my video game, he'd rub my head and say, missed you, bud. Missed you too, dad. Glad you're home. Then I got to college. And it's like I kind of got enthusiastic again when I'd see my dad after a couple months. I just wouldn't say, daddy. I would say, money. <laughs> Things change. Things change, don't they? And God is looking at his people and he's making this case. Do you remember when you had the enthusiasm and the kindness and the passion of a little boy? It's just not that way anymore. God is arguing the same thing to us today. He could be saying this, I remember when you used to love going to church and being in my presence. When you went, it just wasn't out of guilt because you knew you'd get a text from the preacher. I remember when, like a child, you would sing your heart out and you know, that little vein would pop out of your neck and you wouldn't really care what people thought. I remember when the invitation time would come and you didn't know any better, but like a child, get out of your seat and run just for an opportunity to publicly bow and worship God in an intimate way. I just remember you didn't care what people thought. You weren't even nervous. I remember when the first thing that came to your mind upon waking up in the morning was not what's on Facebook and not what's on my to-do list and not what's on Fox News, but what's in the Word of God? What do I get to hear from God today? I remember when you would run to your prayer closet and you would refuse to let anything or anybody interrupt you. You just wanted to talk to your daddy. God remembers the question is, do you? Do you remember when you had that unashamed, childlike passion for God? That soft-hearted kindness and tenderness towards your, towards your father? He didn't end there. He said, you know what else I remember? Verse 2. The love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Look up here. God is saying, it's as though I got on a knee. And I proposed to you. And you became my bride. And if you know back in Israel's history, that's exactly what happened. They were in Egyptian bondage. And God gave them a proposal. Come to me. You put the blood on the door. I'll deliver you. He brought, they didn't have to do anything. God brought them out of slavery. They became his bride. And God said, you remember when you, you followed me out of Egypt and I parted the Red Sea for you? On the other side of the Red Sea, you, you followed me through the wilderness. I was going zigzag motion on you. And you just followed. You know that cloud I had? You followed. The fire by night? You followed. You didn't need a fancy honeymoon. You didn't need a nice car. You didn't need a big house. You just loved me. I remember when Jenny and I first got married, June 24, 2006. We just love being with, with each other. It amazes me to this day that 
She was that into me. I didn't have much to offer. Of course, outside of my good looks and my talent. (laughs) But I didn't have much to offer when it came to a vehicle. I didn't even have my own vehicle. We had to use Jenny's 1999 red Pontiac Grand Am for two years. So we drove from Lubbock to Dallas after our wedding. I took her to Cape Cod, Massachusetts for our honeymoon. We, we were given somebody's timeshare, and they gave us this big old catalog, and we started searching through, and we got sick and tired of just looking at pictures and searching, so we said, let's just go there. Well, we got there, and we walked into the hotel room, and, and it had a, a really weird smell to it. Some creepy people hanging around. And we got in the room, we couldn't find a bed anywhere until we figured out it was in the wall. It was one of those that came out. Now, you know if your bed comes out of the wall, it's probably not a nice hotel. I didn't even let my wife walk the halls. It's just creepy. But you know, the whole time, I just never heard her complain. I say this humbly, not that I deserved it. I I, I didn't hear her complain. I wish you would have got us a nicer room. Wish we didn't have to drive my car. You're real prepared for marriage. You know why? She just wanted, she's my bride. She just wanted to be with me. I could lead her through the wilderness. She didn't really care. She's that in love with me. It's, a, it's humbling. It's amazing. Jesus said in verse 3, Israel was holiness unto the Lord. I set you apart. I could have chosen any nation, any people group, and I chose you. You were slaves. I chose you to be my bride. That's what the word holiness means, set apart. He said, in the first fruits of his increase, he said, you're like my tithe. You're right off the top. You're that value to me, so valuable. He says in the rest of verse 3 that if somebody tries to devour you, I'll devour them. And God remembers when you were so in love with him. It didn't really matter what was going on in your life so long as your relationship with Jesus was good. You came to church and you were stressed and you were burdened and you were worried. The song started and all of a sudden, man, oh, I'm in the presence of my father. You're like a loyal bride. He didn't have to give you a bunch of things. He didn't have to put a big old fat check in the mailbox rewarding you for tithing or anything like that. You never had to get noticed. You just, you just were so glad you're in a relationship with Jesus. You were so glad you were his beloved. You were so glad you were a son of God. You were so gr- glad that, 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 that now you were made kings and priests. You, you were so glad that you had a relationship with Jesus. You, you were so, so thankful that you were a child of God, adopted into the family of God, secure forever. God remembers, do you? You remember when your salvation was that sweet? When it didn't take five songs about salvation to cause you to think, wow, I am glad I'm saved. When it didn't take a trio that's been preparing to sing a song and instrumentalists that accompany them in a powerful way, it didn't take that. It didn't take an arousing choir number to say, you know what, I am pretty blessed because I'm saved. But every time you woke up, Every time you saw God's creation, every time you stepped into his house, you were just always reminded it was fresh on your mind. Wow, God took me to himself. God remembers. But he's about to say something happened. Are you still in the hot seat? It's pretty hot, isn't it? He's about to say something happened and 
It's no longer the way it used to be. And so he issues them a rhetorical question. In verse 4 and 5, he's going to ask them, was it my fault? Did I do something? Look at verse 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me? That they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. Do you see what God's doing? He's saying, is it my fault? Have I done something? Was I not gracious enough? Was I not loving enough? Was I not generous enough? Did I lead you too fast? Did I lead you too slow? Did you not like the cloud? Did you not like the fire? Was it my fault? Of course we know it wasn't God's fault. As for God, his ways are perfect. This was a rhetorical question. God wasn't wanting his people to answer him. God was wanting to stir the conscience of his people. That's the point of a rhetorical question. Like when you're driving down in an automobile with your parents and you're, you're with your siblings in the back and you're fighting and your dad turns around and asks the rhetorical question. Do you want me to come back there and take care of it? You don't answer that question. You don't say, yeah, dad, come on back here. Let's spend some quality time together. Let me see what you got. It's like the rhetorical question your mom asks when she walks through your room as a teenager and says, has a tornado blown through here? You don't answer that question. Yes, mom, I am the lone survivor. Thank you for your concern. <laughs> it's meant to stir your conscience. And God is making a point. It's not my fault. I didn't move. I didn't change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've gone nowhere. It's your fault. And he tells them exactly how it happened. He said, now, here's the way it is. Look at verse number six. Neither said they, where is the Lord? See that? Where is the Lord? That brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. He said, you know where, where it began? You know why it's no longer the way it was? You know why you no longer have the passion of a little boy or the loyalty of a loving bride? You know why? Because you have an acknowledgement problem. You stop telling me thank you. I led you through Egypt. You took it for granted. I helped you defeat militaries you had no right winning against, and you didn't even tell me thank you. I gave you manna from heaven even when you didn't like it, and you, even when you complained about it. And you didn't say Thank you. I've done so much for you, and you just don't seem to care. And God could be making the same case against us. I saved you. I set you apart. I sent somebody down your path to intersect you with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody knocked on your door. One of our class members in Synergy today testified as to the way God sent somebody to knock on their parents' door in Yukon, Oklahoma. Brother John Nelson, who preached last Sunday night, knocked on Johnny Stewart's parents' door. They went to heaven, they're going to heaven now. They went to church, they got saved. Johnny's life was changed. Now he's married to a godly woman, now his kids are in church, all because God sent someone to intersect with his parents' life, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God said, I've done that, I've drawn you, I've given to you, I've protected you, I've provided for you, and you just stop telling me thank you. You get a chance every Sunday to praise my name, and you don't even put your heart into it. You're looking at your watch the entire time. Church doesn't even mean anything to you anymore. 
It's not that you stop praying. It's just that when you pray, you're only asking God for stuff. God, I want this. And God, can you do this? And God said, when's the last time you thanked me for what I've already given you? God's saying, all I am to use a life jacket in case of emergency. All I am to you, pardon me, Aunt Candy, is an insurance agent. Only time you want to talk to me is when you need a little coverage. You seem to have a lot of time to go and read and interact on social media, but you never read my word. You seem to have time to work a lot of weekends and go to a lot of trips and take your kids to a lot of tournaments, but you're only to my house every so often. I'm just an accessory to you. You don't take advantage to acknowledge me anymore. You ask for me to provide for your needs when you're in a time of need, but when I give it to you, you don't give me my tithe. A tithe is an opportunity to worship God and give back to God and acknowledge God. And God's saying, you just stop telling me thank you. But it didn't just stop with God's people. He goes on in verse number 8 and said it continued. This, this acknowledgement problem continued in the leaders. Verse 9, the priest said, not where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The priest, he's talking about those that were supposed to teach the word of God to others. The pastors, those that were supposed to apply the word of God to government. The prophets like Jeremiah who are supposed to sound the alarm to get the attention of God's people. God is saying it's bad enough that my people aren't acknowledging me. It's even worse that the spiritual leaders stopped acknowledging me. You know what that tells me? You're not the only one in the hot seat. I'm in the hot seat today. Brother Tanner, our youth pastor is in the hot seat today. Mike Collins is in the hot seat today. Brother Sid's in the hot seat today. Our wives are in the hot seat today. Every deacon's in the hot seat today. Every fellowship Bible class leader is in the hot seat today. Every choir member who leads in worship is in the hot seat today. It's not just the lay people. It's the leadership that have a tendency to stop acknowledging God. I can preach to a message passionately here and yet go home and never live it myself. I have the tendency to be spiritual lazy. I have the tendency to be selfish. I have the tendency to walk after things that don't profit. It's bad enough that God's people aren't acknowledging him. It's a whole nother level when God's men, the priests, the prophets, the pastors, say not, where is the Lord? And then if you notice the very last part of that verse, the prophets prophesied by who? Baal. Because an acknowledgement problem, it goes somewhere, it drifts. It doesn't stop there. When you fail to acknowledge God, you start going after other gods. And so an, an acknowledgement problem leads to an apostasy problem, a problem of idolatry. And look how God addresses this. Verse number 10. For pass over the Isle of Chittim and see. And then send under Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. You know what God's saying? Look, look. He's saying, I want you to go to Chittim. Why Chittim, God? Because it's as far as you can go to the west. And I want you to go to Kedar. Why Kedar, God? Because it's as far as you can go to the east. And I want you to observe the people in the west. I want you to observe the people in the east. Well, what are we looking for? Verse 11. Hath the nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? God's saying, I want you to go as far as you can to the west. And I want you to see if they've changed their gods. But God, those aren't even real gods. Exactly my point. 
See if they've become disloyal to their false gods. So they go over as far west as they can. Nope, they're still serving their false gods. Okay, now go over to the east as far as you can and see if they're still serving their false gods. Yep, they're still loyal to their false gods. What's the big deal? Last part of verse 11. But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. God is saying, after you've looked at them, after you've looked at them, you come back here and you sit in the hot seat and you listen close. People who serve false gods have more dedication to their false god than you do Yahweh God. And he's telling his people, he's arguing this case, you put me on and off like you put your socks on and off. When I'm convenient, you put me on. When you don't have a tournament, you put me on. When you have money, you put me on. When you have time, you put me on. When it's comfortable, you put me on. When it's not so comfortable, when you're broke, when you're busy, you go after other gods. Something that even vile, heathen, wicked people don't even do. Oh, you don't think that applies today? Well, let's go look at the Mormons. They still dedicated to their God? Last time I checked, on South Grant, there was two boys, white dress shirts, dark ties, full slacks, dress shoes, on a bicycle, with a backpack, in 100 degree weather. Still pretty dedicated. Let's talk to the Jehovah Witnesses. Still loyal to their God? Yeah, there's elderly women with dresses down to their feet. Elderly men carrying around a briefcase with a tie on. Block after block after block telling people about a God that doesn't even exist or their form of God. Yet we have two outreaches a year. It's like pulling teeth to get even half the church there. We got to have food. We got to put it on videos for four weeks just to get you to open your calendar. Why don't we go talk to the Muslims who bow down to their false god five times a day? Have they changed? Have they taken it down to two? Yet God looks at the people and we, we can't even remember to pray for our meal sometimes. And God said, you know when that happens? He says, you've committed two evils. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. For my people committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. He's saying, this is not how it's always been. There was a time in which you were running to the fountain of living water. Something changed. And I didn't. And he used these two illustrations for a reason. The fountain of living water was the best form of, of, of water or, or the best source of water you could have in that day. When you would go and, and, and pitch a tent or, or, or you would go and plant a vineyard or you would go and, and, and try to live in a village, you wanted to locate an area close to a source of water. If you could afford to dig a well and own a well, that was good. If you were near a river, that was even better. If you were beside a fountain or a spring, that was the best. 
And God is saying, I am the best source of hydration for you. Not just physically, but spiritually. Emotionally. And in every way, I am the fount of living water. But instead of accessing that, you have forsaken that. And now you are drinking from cisterns. And not just cisterns, broken cisterns. What they would do is they, they would dig this big pit in the ground where, where they knew there, 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 there was a ground bed of water or some kind of spring going on and that could collect that water and, and they would enlarge it and plaster it. Some of it would hew out cisterns or, or make cisterns and they would put them on top of their roof if they were desperate just to catch any rainwater that would come. Here's why this didn't make sense and why it was so foolish. Number one, they had access to the living fountain. And number two, the source of water they, they went to was terrible because it had holes in it. I want to illustrate to you so you get a vivid picture in your mind. God is arguing. He said, this is the way it is now. This is the way it is. It's as close as I could find to a fountain of living water. God is saying, when I took you out of the land of Egypt, you were dry. You were barren. You were so thirsty. And so I just gave you access to the living water. You would dip down in there and take a drink. Oh, it's good. You take another drink. When you would run out, you would just dip your cup back in there and you'd come back to me. And, ah. Something happened. Some reason you didn't think that was good enough. Somehow I just became too familiar to you. Somehow you looked around at other nations and thought, I want to try their water. So you hewed out cisterns and had holes in it. I wrote some things on here. You started trying to drink from the broken cistern of pleasure. By the time you get it to your mouth, it doesn't have anything. Then you tried to drink from the broken cistern of social life. Doesn't matter that you're an adult. You still party like you're a teenager. But you're still thirsty. Then you hewed out a broken sister and tried to sit from, from a dating relationship here, and then that didn't work out, so you go find another one. That didn't work out, but go find another one. Anything to, to, to satisfy your sexual desires at the moment, but you're still thirsty. So you tried money. But you're still thirsty. You tried popularity. You're still thirsty. You tried possessions. If I get a bigger house and a nicer car, surely I'll be happy. And you're still thirsty. You know what's sad about that? Is if you're a child of God, you have access to the fountain of living water. The Bible says never runs dry. What are you talking about? You can access God at any time, any place, anywhere, for anything. You can run to him when you're sad. 
Run to him when you're afraid. Run to him when you're depressed. You can drink from him in the good times. You can drink from him in the bad times. When you drink from the fountain of living water, it just makes sense that you keep going there because you have access to the God who promised to never leave you nor forsake you. You're drinking from the God that is explained as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You're drinking from the God who is your shepherd in the wilderness and your light in the darkness and your calm in the storm. When you go to the fount of living water, listen to me, you're drinking from the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the rose of Sharon, the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. He's not broken. He doesn't leak. He never leaves you thirsty because you're drinking from the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author of your faith and the finisher of your faith. And when you drink of him, you never run dry. For some reason, you've walked away. God said in doing so, you committed evil. It's the way it is. You're dry and you're barren. You still in the hot seat? God's saying, I remember the way it was. Passion of a little boy. Loyalty of a loving bride. Something happened. You stopped acknowledging me. You went after lesser gods, and here's the way it is now. You're dry. You're barren. You just keep trying to sit from broken sisters. And he says, if something doesn't change, here's the third point, the way it will be. Look at verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? God is saying, you know what's going to happen if you don't change? If you don't repent, you are going to become a slave again. I brought you out of Egyptian bondage. You're taking yourselves right back into it. And God is telling us, here's the way it's going to be if something doesn't change. The very sin you thought would set you free is going to shackle you and enslave you. The broken cistern that you're sipping on, the only reason you started sipping on it is because you wanted to lessen the stress. You wanted to take the edge off. You wanted to ease the pain. You just wanted to relax you for a moment, but now it's enslaved you. And if you're not careful, here's going to be the cycle of your life. You want it. You do it. You hate it. And then you want it again, so you do it again, and you hate it again. And you will be shackled by the sin that you're supposed to be free from. He says, that's not it. He asks the question, why is he spoiled? Well, what does that mean? He explains in verse 15, the young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. It's a picture of somebody going in and taking the spoils from their land. And God's making this case. He's arguing this point. Something doesn't change. You're going to lose the things you love the most. Your marriage. Your children. Your financial stability. 
your testimony, your reputation, your credibility, your health, whether physical or mental, your peace, and your joy. He goes on. Also the children of Noph and Tehophanes have broken the crown of thy head. What is he saying? Those are two Egyptian cities. Most scholars think when he says they've broken the crown of the head, they're talking about defeating the king. Who is the king? They're talking about King Josiah. He's an, he was an amazing king. Took the children of Israel out of idolatry, led them into a dedication to the word of God, the ways of God. And he says, here's what's going to happen. If something doesn't change, you're going to be utterly defeated. You are meant to live in victory. And you're going to experience one loss after another. You're never going to be able to get ahead. You'll be a loser. And then he sums it up with the last three verses. Hast thou not procured or brought this unto thyself? That thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? And now what? Hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria? To drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. And thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter. That thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. That my fear is not in thee. Saith the Lord God. Here's the way it'll be. You'll realize, wow, I brought this on myself. And then you'll just try to go, go to the world like Sihor, Assyria, and Egypt. You think they're going to give you their water? Oh, you, you think when, whenever you, you, you can't drink here, you think you're going to run to those wicked, vile, evil cities? They're going to somehow be generous with their rivers? No, you're going to keep running to the world and you're going to find out real quick that the world has nothing to offer you. And they'll be your friend until they get everything out of you that they want. Then they'll leave. Satan is a master at false advertisement. Oh yeah, I got a big river for you. Come on. Leave that wife. Leave that husband. Leave that church. Oh yeah, get a third and fourth job. Oh, yeah, smoke that, drink that, watch that. Go, oh, the, the, this is a fountain of living water. It's false advertisement. And at the end of the day, you'll lay in bed, and here will be your greatest teacher, your own sin. You will sit in the classroom of your own backsliding, and you will think this, how in the world did I get here? And the backslider in you will whisper. It's because you left the fountain of living water. You stop telling God, thank you. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that being often reproved, that means preached to, corrected, yet hardeneth his neck, gets stubborn, Solomon says, shall be destroyed suddenly, and that without remedy.
if something doesn't change, God says, that's how it will be. So if you're in the hot seat and you've heard the case argued against you, question, how do you plead? Guilty? Do you remember the way it used to be? Your relationship with God. Remember that? When you first got saved? Passion, kindness of a little boy. Loyalty of a loving bride. You didn't need anything from God. You had God. He was enough. Your prayer time wasn't just request. Your prayer time was a lot of thank yous. And that led you to a slow drift. And now, boy, you got three or four other gods that come before the true and living God. So my plea to you is, you need to repent. Because if you don't, you're going to pay a price. And don't let the devil whisper in your ear and say, I procrastinated a little longer. See how long you can hold this out. See if you can be an exception to that rule. Because I've known a lot of people that have lived in sin for 20 or 30 years, and they've, they've been just fine. I just don't want to risk being the exception. I've got some good news to end the message. If you're willing to get out of the hot seat and admit to God that it's just not the way it used to be, and on authority of the word of God, I can tell you that our judge, though righteous, is also full of grace. And our judge stands ready to forgive upon your plea of guilt. How do you know? Romans 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. I just gave you the law. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is, sin hath reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're guilty today, grace is better than that. He has plenty to offer everybody in this building, and he'll have a lot left over at the end of the day. So if grace is given so freely, where is the Christian today that will step out of the seat? Admit to the Lord that things aren't like they used to be. Where's the Christian that will get out of the hot seat, get on their knees before God in his house and say, I'm sorry. I want things to be like they used to be so that I don't experience what you say I'll experience if things don't change. God, I want to love you like I used to. I want to sing to you like I used to. I want to pray like I used to. I want to be concerned about the loss like I used to. I want to give like I used to. I want to serve like I used to. I just want to be what I used to be then you got to start doing the things you used to do. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye.